podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we're taking a look at Weird War Tales number 32. But first, Rich has an intel report for you. It's easy for you to say. Guns of the Dragon, a four-issue DC miniseries created by Tim Truman in October 1998. Batlash, Biff Bradley, and enemy ace Hans von Hammer form an unlikely group as they are sent by the U.S. and Chinese governments to retrieve two ancient swords on Dragon Island, but have to contend with Misphere, Mao Zedong, some shape-shifting Japanese ninja, and Vandal Savage, who are after the same items. Dragon Island? You know what this is. Dinosaur Island. Or the time forgot. And Tim Truman is well used to writing weird stuff, what with all that Jonah Hex stuff he did with Sam Glansman. Hex is even mentioned in passing at one point. Watching the Hammer of Hell duel a cloud of pterodactyls in his DR1 is worth the cover price all by itself. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> I mean, people, if we don't do an issue of that as a special mission down the road, I'm not sure what we're here for. But vote for it, fans. Vote, vote for it. it. Vote for it. Or, like, you know, I'll just keep complaining until we do that one because, God damn. And the ace and Jonah Hex? Oh, my God. <laughs> Vandal Savage in the mix. I mean, come on. <laughs> Before we all rush off to read that miniseries, which, you know, if I were you, I'd do right now because you can hit pause, right? <laughs> we're going to take a little break to read that miniseries and spotlight someone else's awesome podcast. And when we get back, we'll take a look at the issue at hand. Damien, Damien, what? You know, in the bedroom, yeah. there's thousands of boxes of comics thousands of boxes of comics i'll have you know i've only got 47 boxes of comics 47 47 that's barely any that 47 is less than one box of comics for every year i've been alive don't you think that is dangerous we've got so many boxes piled up by the bed i think it's highly unlikely they would fall though i've stacked them quite well what would you think if i told you that maybe you should get rid of some what? It's only a suggestion. How dare you? I love those comics. Do you love all of those comics? I love almost all of those comics. But should you love these comics? I love them all. I will not part with any of them. How very dare you? Prove it. Well, I suppose we could start working our way through my collection reading them together and deciding whether or not I should love this comic. Sounds like a podcast. Well, we are two middle-aged men. We probably should start a podcast at some point. You're right, everybody else has got a podcast. So listen to Should I Love This Comic with me, Damien Drewe-Whiter. And me, Irigail Drewe-Whiter. Where we will go through comics and tell you, Should, should I, I Love, love This, this Comic? comic? Go to shouldilovethis.blogspot.com where you can find all our latest episodes. You can also see a gallery of images that we talk about in the episode. Should I love this comic? I think so. What do you think? 
And we are back. So, as I said at the top, we're taking a look at Weird War Tales number 32. And as always, Rich is right here for you with that cover detail. This 20 cent cover is done by Luis Dringas. The yellow Weird War Tales sits on a purple sky. Eight German soldiers flee in cower and terror from a massive red fire-breathing demon that's destroying the city. One demon hand is crushing a building while the other has snatched a stupid dive bomber out of the sky. The walls of flames are about to engulf a tank. Behind the demon, three twin-engine German bombers are dropping their payloads. Cover date, December 1974. Date of release, September 24th, 1974. Killjoy, the swastika on the Stuka's tail wouldn't be in a red circle oh, like oh. that, nor would the German crosses on the wings have the red outline. Also, the bombs are falling well behind the demon. If I was in those planes, I'd be doing a run on the big red nasty. Okay, comments and commendations on this excellent cover. Spoiler alert for me. <laughs> DC Comics goes full-on Marvel monster comic style with this one. All that's missing is the I face Dragor, the monster who burned down the world caption. The only disappointing thing about this cover for me is that there is nothing like this scene contained within the pages beneath. Well, you could draw one parallel, but it would be a stretch. I will. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love it, but it puts me in the mood to read a comic book other than the one it's on top of. Yeah, this is this is the odd cover where you feel a smidge of pity for the Germans. I like the fact there are buildings crumbling in the background that are nowhere near the demon, which gives you a feeling of, for how much power it's projecting. You get to wondering what they did to piss them off so much. The red coloring set against the purple sky and gray buildings really draws your eye in, too. Dominguez is maintaining his usual run of great work. So that very Stan Lee and Jack Kirby looking cover out of the way. We're going to dive into the first full length story in the issue. And Rich has got you covered, people. My enemy, the stars. Eight pages. Script by Bill Finger. Art by Jerry Taleok. Interesting team. Synopsis. It's the cover story. Spoiler alert. Page seven, panel two. PFC Gene Wilson is shaken awake by his sergeant. Wilson had been yelling in his sleep about the stars reaching for him. It was all because of Coley, he thought. Coley was a nut about astrology and horoscopes and had told him one night that Wilson's horoscope warned him to avoid swimming. A Nazi ambush had scattered the patrol and when Wilson had dived for cover behind a bush, he found himself falling into a pond. Completely exposed to German fire, Wilson was suddenly rescued by Coley, who had returned fire and cleared out the enemy. I warned you, you can't go against the stars, Coley had yelled. Now the captain orders Wilson to go investigate a nearby abandoned village's bell tower to recon for the enemy. It was only after Wilson had left on the mission that he remembered Coley had warned him to beware of high places. Wilson bellowed to the stars that he wasn't afraid of them and continued on, although with a sense of dread. Climbing the stairs to the tower, it was only the gleam of the Nazi lookout's slashing bayonet that warned Wilson. The horoscope was right again. Falling back off balance, Wilson grabbed the bell rope. The huge bell swung and knocked the German off the tower to his death. 
but the bell ringing was the signal for the Germans to attack in this sector. Wilson took off to warn the captain, but he was seen. A near miss by a tank's 88 flattened Wilson, who lay stunned and helpless. Only able to stare up at the stars, he recognized he shouldn't have cursed them. But as he lay there, the random constellations began to take the forms of the legendary figures for which they had been named. Taurus the bull leapt to the ground and flipped a tank that was bearing down on Wilson. Orion began to smash German armor with his club. It couldn't be real. It had to be a dream. But Leo the lion pounced on a tiger tank. Sagittarius the archer fired armor-piercing arrows. Scorpio the scorpion cracked tanks in his claws like walnuts. Drago the dragon was a mighty flamethrower. Aquarius the water pourer drowned German troops as winged Pegasus cleared the sky of enemy aircraft. Wilson passed out, and when he recovered, the field before him was strewn with enemy wreckage. It was still impossible. Maybe his unit had done it, or a different one. But nobody knew. Some things happened, and no logic can explain them. But the one thing Wilson knew was he wasn't afraid of the stars anymore. In fact, he would ultimately be awarded a medal. The Silver Star. Killjoy, page one, pale two. Wilson's sergeant is running around with a blazing flashlight. Great way to get shot if you're on the front line. Comments and combinations. Last time it was the cards predicting fate. Now it's horoscopes. Ah, the 70s. I'm just going to toss some of my last words in here and say this one was easily my favorite story. The imagery of constellations coming to life and running roughshod over the German forces is stellar. See what I did there? I'll take uh, page six, panel one of Taurus slamming into a tank so hard the tank flips over and the turret falls off. But I'll also call your attention to page three, panel one, the shadows on Wilson's face as he processes Coley's prediction that came true. Yeah, and those are both great panels. And I would say, yeah, we are witnessing in this series, in the Weird War Tales series, a rare occurrence of a comic book actually being in tune with the times instead of embarrassingly, cringingly behind. Normally, if a comic's jumping on a fad, it was over five to ten years ago. But Weird War Tales has been on the pulse with what the 70s pop culture was obsessed with. So that's kind of cool. I gotta say, though, this story to me seems more like a superhero origin than a weird war tale. Like, it's the census-shattering debut of Starman! Yes! Another freaking Starman! I mean, this is DC Comics. What did you expect? When in doubt, just make another Starman. Or put out seven more Batman titles, but this is 1974, not 2022. The plot, for me, didn't really work, even. Wilson cursed the stars, and then he sort of apologizes once and they come to his rescue. No ironic death caused by his own hubris. Again, this seems like a twist on the Moon Knight origin. Was a jerk about to die, chosen by the heavens, changes his ways, etc. And, you know, can now summon the stars down to destroy enemy armaments. The art... Is fantastic, though, as Rich was describing to you in his chosen panels, uh, even all throughout. The script gives Jerry Talayak multiple chances to show off his skills. It's good-looking stuff. You all know I really dig the use of rounded panels for flashbacks. That technique is used really well right in the beginning of the story. So craft-wise, I'm here for it. It's a great-looking story. For my spotlight panel, I will call out page three, panel five with Wilson shaking his fist and cursing the stars. The scenery is stark 
and Wilson looks very small, defiant, and alone. I will, however, also point out that the sky he is cursing above him in that panel has no freaking stars depicted in it at all. Seems a bit of a comically missed opportunity. So, yeah, I was I was a little mixed on this one, but we'll talk about it in, a, in last words. First story's out of the way, and the honor falls to me to discuss the latest installment of the day after doomsday. It's two pages long with a script by Steve Skeets and art by Bill Drought. Synopsis, which probably take me as long to read as it would take you to read the two pages of the story, goes like this. Mr. and Mrs. Ian Jones own a farm in rural Great Britain. Mrs. Jones finishes feeding the chickens and walks with her husband down to the well to get some water. It had been so hot out lately. As they discuss their upcoming trip to London over refreshing cups of well water, they notice something strange happening and start to hurry back to the safety of home. But safety was not to be theirs. Deadly radiation had seeped into the water, and they were rapidly shrinking in size. One of their chickens would have a special breakfast that day. Go. <sighs> that endeth the day after doomsday. And Rich found a way to have a little killjoy for this one. Of course. Their clothes shrank as the Joneses did? Incredible Hulk Purple Pants case study number 5673. Yeah, they were loosening the Comics Code Authority standards in the 70s, but they weren't loosening them that much. You couldn't have little <laughs> miniature naked farmers running around get eaten by chickens. They could still get eaten by chickens, but they would do it with their clothes on, like Damn decent it. Americans. Wait, <laughs> decent Britons, I guess. You know what I'm talking about. So, anyway. Comments, <laughs> commentations for this one. I'll start it off and say the plot such as it is here is even sloppier than the one preceding it in my opinion but in a way that crosses the line over into pure gonzo territory so i dig it in two pages it not only gets a couple of chuckles out of me but makes me wonder what the rest of this bonkers post-apocalyptic world must be like what else has changed out there if this sheltered farm has radioactive shrinking water how much crazier is it elsewhere Drought's art works really well for this type of story, too. His classic, somewhat realistic style makes it all the more shocking when the impossible happens. I like that effect a lot, and he's good at it. I like the whole first page, in fact. The intro box title logo is fantastic. The pastoral look of the splash panel, the natural body language, and the surroundings in panels two and three. I like how Ian John's there. The farmer husband is leaning up against the well. It's just, it's perfect body language. It looks so real. Again, drought pulls you into this naturalistic kind of feeling before it goes crazy. And that great cliffhanger shock panel at the bottom of the page where all the background drops away and it's just a stark blue background and they look terrified and makes you want to turn that page. The whole thing does a great job. And Steve Skeets was an excellent choice to bring in for these kinds of short features. He can do the absurd and make it so entertaining that you don't care how many plot holes you're falling through along the way. Steve Skeets is someone, if you're not familiar with him, look into his stuff. And he is particularly good at writing really strange stories that you enjoy no matter how crazy they are. What's the over-under on one of our dear listeners dropping a Twilight Zone reference here? Pardon me wonders, even in deep rural Great Britain, how the Joneses couldn't have known that the world had ended. But it's a two-page story, so let it go. This is still a good story. Best panel, what else? Page two, pen, 
rolls three and four, the giant rooster looking at its next meal. Oh yeah. Yeah, that, you know, obviously that's that's the spotlight, but I had to I had to wax poetic about the mechanics <laughs> of the first page because you it's a two page story and you only have so much space and it's used perfectly here. But yeah, the body language of of those two while they're looking up at the chicken and the chicken looking down at them is freaking great. I, it's it's just you know I, I gotta say day after doomsday is starting to win me over here. <laughs> <laughs> really is so. With that surprising development behind us, we're going to wander on over to the post office, to the APO Weird War Tales section. Rich is going to kick it off for us here. Yes, the APO Weird War Tales. The head of Alfredo Alcala's one-eyed narrator appears interspersed between the letters, which is a nice touch. Yes, Molly agrees. Christopher Moose, great last name, from Glassy Point, Idaho. That's a good name, too wins my honors this time through. Dear Joe, one of the things I always enjoyed about Jack Olick's work in the is the Twilight Zone type endings so many of his stories have. While other people may feel that too many stories of this type become a bore, I always welcome them. Take, for example, Survival of the Fittest and the latest Weird War Tales. Only this type of an ending, the continual reliving of the sinking of the Althea, could be just punishment for a man like the Capitan. And in The General, the computer made an interesting twist to the tale of cavemen tribes battling each other. You did, however, tip your hand on this one. On page four, the captured caveman says that the General lives in an old subway. As soon as I read that, I figured out the ending. Finally, The Veteran seemed like a minor little space war story until that last panel. It's the kind of ending that makes you ask yourself, what's the world coming to? The art by Frank Robbins, Alfredo Alcala, and Kurt Sheeran Blaisdell was all good. These three different styles set the stories and their moods apart, unlike some issues where you can't tell one story from the next. Keep up the good work. Christopher Moose, Classy Point, I know. That's a pretty solid letter. I don't have any problems with that one. Okay, and for my spotlighted letter, I picked a guy who takes a dump all over that whole issue and those three stories in particular. Starts off like this. Dear Joe. Weird War Tales is usually one of your most imaginative magazines, with stories that try new directions and ideas. Unfortunately, number 27 was completely unlike your other issues in that respect. The cover was an interesting Dominguez effect, but you're getting stuck in a bit of a rut with that skeleton routine. If he keeps popping up on every cover, no one will be shocked by him. As Jack Olek was behind all three of these cliché stories, I'll discuss the scripting all at once. It was all competent enough writing, but the plots were just the same old stuff. The art, on the other hand, was exceptional. Frank Robbins is one of the finest artists that you use and is also one of the most unusual. Alfredo Alcala is more like the rest of your artists, but he's one of the better members of the intricate line school. I've not seen enough of Paul Kirchner's work to judge him, but I suspect he'll turn out to be a very fine artist. Better luck next time, which I'm sure you won't need since I spotted the plug for a book length or next, and you know I love those. John Elliott, New York, New York. And Joe Orlando, our gracious, gracious editor, replies, We always try to put new ideas in Weird War, but everyone's entitled to an occasional failure. However, not all our correspondents 
thought number 27 missed the mark. Yeah, and, and this guy. Like, there's so many contradictions in that letter. It's just so typically fandom picky. He's like, usually you guys are so unique and all this, but this was unlike your other issues in that respect. Okay, so what was it? Was it the same as all your other issues? Was it a, yeah, just so picky all the way down, unable to enjoy a simple comic book? And those were three really perfectly good weird war tale stories but you always have the one guy that's going to come along and like me and all at least he recognized that the art was good and in particular praised frank robbins so i'll give him this they they seem to listen because there was no skeleton on this cover though huh happy now johnny i bet you're not <laughs> so i just i always like these uh super picky fandom letters to remind me that really Nothing has changed. We just have the internet now, so we have to hear about it more often. <laughs> so <laughs> with that out of the way, we're going to close down the uh, Weird War Tales APO post office. Mail call is done, and we're going to move along to the next full-length story in the issue. And we have a little special guest that's going to do the intro. I wonder if you guys can guess who it is. Oh, I wonder. I wonder. A glutton <laughs> for punishment. Eight pages, script by Jack Olek, art by Jess Jodleman. Synopsis. <clears throat> of all the four horsemen of the apocalypse who made war hell, hunger is the most horrible. For food, men will kill, lie, even destroy their fellow men. That was what the commander did. Only two things mattered to him. To find enough food to fill his belly and to live to enjoy it. And if he had to pay for those things with pieces of himself, well, he was a glutton for punishment. The stocky commander of a unit of crusaders screams at his men as they begin to retreat in the face of a Saracen attack. <laughs> Filthy cowards! There's food in that village and I haven't eaten in three days. Attack! One of the commander's men retorts with, fat swine, enough of us have already died for the sake of your belly. If you want what lies in the village, take it yourself. Enraged, the commander brings his sword down on the man, but the enemy counterattack forces the crusaders to withdraw. At camp, the commander rages, not at the enemy, but at his own men. Suddenly, a banquet of food materializes in front of him. Ibn Said is a ghostly Saracen who only wants to make the commander happy. You live to eat, so I bring you food. You are afraid to die, so I can guarantee your life. I'm a physician, a man of many talents. The commander doesn't believe him and rams a dagger into Ibn Said's chest, but it passes straight through. The Saracen convinces the commander that he means no harm, and with the food he brought is quite real. As the commander gorges himself with the food, barely listening, the Saracen offers a bargain to him that he won't die or go hungry. The commander counters with a demand that he can never die. Those are harsh terms, Bin Said counters. How about you will live until you ask to die? What kind of man wishes to die? But so be it. The commander accepts the Saracen's bargain, and Ibn Said disappears. Was it all a dream? The food in his belly was real enough. So maybe he was immortal. He decides to lead tomorrow's attack on the village himself to the shock of his officers. Knowing he couldn't be killed, the commander finally fights as a commander, slaying enemy after enemy. 
until a Saracen sword cleaves off his left ear. Racked with pain, he tells his men to continue the assault. Alone, he turns to see Ibn Said and curses. Trickster, you promised I wouldn't be hurt. I promised that you would live until you asked to die. Nothing else. The commander now sees Ibn Said's plan to cause him so much pain that he begged to die. But the Saracen vanishes as the commander's men return. The village has fallen, but the moment of bravado had also vanished. After ransacking the village, he orders his men to break camp and join the siege of Jerusalem. It's a foolish decision. The next day, his small band of crusaders is overwhelmed by hordes of Saracens. A mace catches the commander across the face and destroys his left eye. The enemy is repelled, but two-thirds of the crusaders have been lost. Instead of establishing a defensible camp and tending to the wounded, the commander orders that the wounded will have to fend for themselves and to continue the march to Jerusalem. The crusaders are soon attacked again. As casualties mount, even the commander recognizes a stand must be made in some nearby ruins. Four days pass, and the besieged crusaders hunger and thirst. The commander rations out the remaining supplies to his men, but continues to take as much as he wants for himself. Two more days pass, and the Saracens bring up a catapult. A Greek fire rains down on the crusaders, who finally break and flee. The commander screams at them to come back, and Ibn Said appears. Ask him if he wouldn't prefer a quicker, cleaner death. Greek fire will find him eventually. The commander refuses, insisting that he'll never ask to die. Almost immediately, he suffers a direct hit. The fire burns his limbs from his body. Racked in agony, he can still refuse Ibn Said's offer of death. I'm dying. If I die, you lose. You'll never get what you really want. My soul. I'll still beat you. The ghostly Saracen recognizes that a deal is a deal and heals the commander. But almost immediately, as a smiling Ibn Said turns to leave, the commander realizes he's been tricked. What have you done? Come back. I can't live like this. Please kill me. But the commander has no cause to complain. He was still alive and would still be able to eat if someone fed him. For the commander is still a hideously burned limbless trunk but standing on hands where his feet should be. Check the album. There's a photo. Oh, there will be. <laughs> I've got I've to hit you guys here with, uh, with something almost unprecedented. I have two. Uh, one that hasn't even been in the script until I just was looking it up right now, as I forgot. Two history minutes baked into my CNCs. First of all, Ibn Said is often also referred to uh, by his more historically accurate name, Ibn Saud, the somewhat historical, somewhat legendary, rumored founder of the first Saudi state. And just the other night, I was reading Chilling Adventures and Sorcery number five that I bought at Terrificon. We'll be talking about that on a, on a Road Warriors episode. Spoiler alert there. So Chilling Adventures and Sorcery number five, which has one of the coolest covers you'll ever see in your life. I'll put a photo of that in the script here for Rich to play with. Has a story in it with with a sorcerer by the name Ibn Saud in it as well. So when the next day I'm reading this issue of Weird War Tales for this episode, I'm like, oh man, there it is again. So and they were published around the same time. So it's like that name was also getting getting passed around in comic book writing circles as a Middle Eastern sorcerer type to use. So yeah, Ibn Said. Ibn Saud, 
little history minute there. And yet I continue. <laughs> so my original CNC starts out like this. Once again, I'm reminded of a tale I read in a Charlton horror comic about a rich guy who bought a charm that would bring eternal life, but he balked at buying another charm to go along with it in the deal. The other charm, however, was the one that provided eternal youth. So the rich guy lives forever, aging into a withered and twisted monstrosity. This is at least the second time I've mentioned that story on the show, so I figured I should really try to go out and do some research to remind myself about which issue of which series I actually first read it in. So, again, in an unprecedented development here, an actual research update. The story in question turns out to be The Scarab, originally printed in Midnight Tales number 13 in 1975 with art by Don Newton. There'll be a, at least one page where uh, you'll see the guy making his fatal mistake and only buying one of the scarabs in the album. The story was reprinted in Haunted, or Baron Werewolf's Haunted Library, number 30, in 1980, which is where I encountered it. And you'll see the cover of that issue in the album as well. The cover a story of that issue of The Haunted Library features an obvious unused Doctor Strange tale by none other than Steve Ditko, too. It's a great cover. The story's awesome. And when you, you get your hands on this thing, it's a Doctor Strange story. And Steve just changed the name of the guy. It's it's so obvious. It's it's awesome. So price of that one is probably like 10 times or more the average cost of a Charlton pack issue. So fair warning, because I think everyone's in on that secret that has any attention to looking for that issue. So, OK, Charlton Horror Comics History Minute and any other extraneous History Minute complete. Back to this story. I'll keep it short since I've been rambling. It was very well done. And much like The Scarab, that final issue of the reconstructed Mr. Potato Head by David Cronenberg Crusader is going to stick with me for a while. Uh, yeah, you'll you'll know when you see it. <laughs> well, actually, there's no spoiler alert for that uh, reference for Trivicon because that episode will probably drop before you find listeners listen to this episode. <laughs> oh, but I enjoy messing with the time travel aspects like that. It's better to me if it just completely makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> no! Say <laughs> so, man. John Lemon looks like another Alfredo Alcala whose best work is going to be the Desert Warfare slash Medieval Tales. Page one, panel one, his rendition of the skeletal narrator, crouched and leaning on his sword as the four horsemen of the apocalypse gallop behind him, is easily one of the best panels in the book. And by the time we reach page three, panel one, we've already decided the Crusader commander is a fat, loathsome, reprehensible character, and Jarlaman's capture of him greedily tearing into the food on his table just cements it. You already can't wait for this guy to get what's coming to him. Yeah, agreed. I, I like I said, I, I I kept it lean on the story content because I had so much else to say. But I'd never heard of this artist before, and dead on that, very much in the Alcala school. I was really impressed by every panel of this one. It's such good looking stuff, and I couldn't believe I'd never heard of this person before. We're so. gonna be seeing him a lot. I, I think, if I remember correctly, I, I think Alcala's done. I don't think we're gonna be seeing Alcala anymore. But I think Jogleman essentially almost literally takes over for him 
And so if this is the kind of art we're getting, we're not going to miss all color. <laughs> oh, that's really good news, man. I, I, Cause I'm, I'm going to enjoy the heck out of discovering somebody new like that. So, so that is awesome. <laughs> Cannot wait that story out of the way. We're going to move on to the next one and I'm getting off real easy on this. Episode. <laughs> yes. Yes. You yeah, are. And, and so you're, you're getting getting all the cheap two page. Yeah, we're passing the savings on to you, dear listener, <laughs> because other than my history minute ramblings, you get to hear a little bit less from me too. So this story is called mission into madness and it's two pages long. It is scripted by George cash down with art by uh, uprising favorite new artist of mine, Bill Drought. And the synopsis goes a little something like this. Three, OSS men paddle ashore a Japanese island in an inflatable raft. They're immediately greeted by enemy soldiers. Two of the Americans hold them off while Spence breaks into a bunker and starts reprogramming a control panel. Outside, the enemy soldiers suddenly stop moving then turn and attack each other. When the strange battle is over, all of the most advanced robots ever designed have been destroyed. Still, no match for the human brain. What about next time? There's no killjoy, but I'll let Rich get in here and tell you what he thought about this one. Without a <laughs> doubt, the dud of the issue. Pure space filler all the worst elements of all the past stories we've had where robots are involved. I like page one, panel one's narrator. Awful way to end the book. Next! <laughs> but Rich, would you give it four or five out of five stars? <laughs> Three thumbs down. <laughs> nice. With the banter between the soldiers in, in the, the first couple of panels... You're led to at first think it's going to be racism, but then it's really robots. So this story brought to you by the letter R, as in, are these guys serious with this stuff? Probably not. <laughs> I give it points for the sheer stupidity of the twist. It's got decent art, too. I mean, you know, Bill Drought, he's, he's becoming a buddy of mine, especially in that intro title logo panel. You know I'm a sucker for those, but this one is great. You got to admit Hey, I'm really becoming a fan of Bill Drought. I liked the sheer dumbness of this one. I got to agree with you, though. To be real about the rating for this, it's freaking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I, I did enjoy parts of it, and it was only two pages, so it didn't it didn't take much away. But I'll, we'll get back to that later. <laughs> for now, we will move on from the story content of the issue and get around to our spotlighted ads. And since Rich took my favorite ad for the I issue, do that a lot. He does, but he, <laughs> he does the work first, so he gets first dibs. I can't I can't complain. I will, but I, I don't I don't have the right to, but I'm gonna do it. So I'll go with the other animal-centric ad of the issue. And this thing, it's still, it's still a fantastic ad. I would have been torn anyway. So this is a full page ad on the back. And it's a big yellow, like shaggy, spiky splash that says endangered animals by Ravel. And endangered, the first two letters are black, the letters for danger and red. And then the last two are, you know, in black again. So danger is spotlighted. Makes you think of the crocodile hunter immediately if you're of a certain age. 
endangered animals by Ravel. Crikey! Yeah, crikey! <laughs> big action models. And you've got a, a main drawing of a big, angry gorilla standing on some really thick branch, reaching his hand out with his fangs prominently displayed. You know, more burst logos here that say, easy to assemble, no glue needed, just snap pieces together. It makes me think this is the kind of model I would have had because I was such a I was so bad at models as a kid that I would only ever get the snap ones. My parents just like knew, like they'd get my brother a real model that you needed glue and stuff. And they just be like, get Max the snap one because he is so completely uncoordinated. So I might've had one of these, bro, I know. The ad copy goes on to say, Ravel's new endangered animal models are big, fun-filled kits to capture all the action and fury of the real animals. Huge, powerful creatures that once feared nothing, but now struggle for their very survival. That sounds a little mean to me. Like we're sort of gloating over the fact that you thought you were scary, but now there's only seven of you left. So how scary are you? You know, <laughs> it's it's eh, that, that seems like rubbing it in. Uh, Ravel's snap together endangered animal models all have movable parts, but I bet they don't have zap action. So <laughs> your collection of these beasts from the wild aren't going to just sit on a shelf. You can use them to create your own adventures anytime. But, you know, be careful. There's only a handful of these creatures left in the world. It says in big red print, movable parts on everyone. You've got the endangered Komodo dragon, the endangered condor, and the endangered rhino, which also has a little bird on his back. It's kind of cute. I like that. So you can get Ravel's endangered animal models wherever hobbies and toys are sold. Check them out. And boom, just right there. I, I, I haven't looked yet. I want to see photos of these actual models. I, you know, that's probably an easy Google search away. I just haven't done it yet. And again, I suspect I had so many snap model kits as a kid that these things must have still been floating around you know, yard sales and stuff like that, or just toy stores used to have old stuff, or we went to flea markets. I might've had one of these. So there's, there's my spotlighted ad for the issue. And Rich, We'll let you know about the one he stole from. <laughs> the endangered condor. All you Johnny Quest fans, you should go get that one, right? <laughs> yes, I managed to work a Johnny Quest reference in. <laughs> Duke, the super action dog. Yo, Joe. He wants you to be his master. His mouth opens. Leg, head, and body can be moved for action. Duke holds the canyon slide in his mighty jaw and glides to the rescue. Duke's headquarters with real periscope for Duke and you, the perfect spot to plan Duke's adventures. Duke's rescue unit with emergency light, portable rescue beam, winch, and harness. Be the master of your own super action dog. Adventure comic books occluded with both sets. Brought to you by Kenner and General Mills. I mean... Yeah, man. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, how could I not <laughs> take this one? I had to. <laughs> this one was just, you know, just Duke's headquarters. Like, like a dog could just do this crap all on his own. Like, if, if Duke could do all this on his own, he doesn't need you to be his master. He can feed himself, god damn it. <laughs> I gotta tell you, I had this toy. I, when we're in the, when I was in the script. I'm like, I think I actually had this toy. I I spoke to my mom this afternoon, and she's like, Oh yeah, I described the the toys to her, and she's like, Yeah, you had everything but the headquarters for that because she <laughs> like making the dog slide down the zip line, and, and I remember playing with this toy. So like, I mean, 
curse you, dude. This, this <laughs> I actually played with. And you know, you know that Animal Heroes are one of my biggest soft spots. But fine, fine. I got to have the fun of that endangered animal model kit thing, which was, was still, that, that was just a treat for me too. But man, I had these toys. <laughs> now I'm kind of upset that I didn't have the headquarters. <laughs> but man, eBay. <laughs> I'm not sure. I might just pay through the nose for for this whole this whole playset to put this together again. I, I, I'm honestly thinking of looking for this stuff. <laughs> and, and you said it came with books. I think I remember that too. It came with like little pseudo comic books. I mean, you know that's going to stick in my even my terrible memory something like that's going to at least have a faint imprint in there. Those even, tiny five inch by eight inch you know, not quite full-sized comics. My memory for details is basically a swamp in the middle of a typhoon. There's not a lot you can you can find to piece history together. <laughs> but, but some things make a deep enough impression in my brain where I actually kind of remember them. So two freaking great ads having been dealt with people. We are going to move on to our little section we like to call Got Any Last Words? Definitely one of the best all-around issues, but that last story really pulled it down in the rankings. The stories were all weird, and the ads, letters, and three of the four stories were all at least very amusing. Keep it up. I gotta say, a gloriously goofy mess of an issue. My only real so-called disappointment is that the kaiju-driven chaos on the cover was not really represented in the issue. You, you got a dragon in there that's breathing fire. That is not good enough to stand in for that giant Jack Kirby monster on the cover. I'm sorry. But, you know, still, like I said, this is what I'm here for. This was, every story was crazy, even the one that Rich is being a little too hard on, <laughs> even though it did suck. <laughs> yes, yes um, it did. The art was a, good, I'll give you that, the art. Yeah. The story was awful. Some great Bill Drought artists. In my mind, it kind of paralleled that story about the Red Baron getting killed by, get it, the guy that had that last name. Bishop, oh, yeah. Like, like the, that story was fantastic. And I just found this, I found the story even more, like super disappointing. But even I had to admit the art was great. So I feel like this is payback for that. Like, <laughs> that's kind of this. We've kind of flip flopped on how we enjoyed this one as opposed to that one. So there's balance in the force out there, people, and you can find it in the issues of DC Comics Weird War Tales, published in 1971 to 1983. So with the last words out of the way, we're taking a trip to the Dead Letter Office, where we remind you we have merch on Redbubble.com. Just look up Weird Warriors Podcast. You will find yourself standing within the storefront of the Weird Warriors Podcast PX, and you can put our logo on stuff and show it to other people or keep it to yourself. Why should other people get to look at it? You know, it's yours. It's yours forever. So, <laughs> again, we're still kind of we're still kind of in between episodes of the uh, the slowdown. But surprisingly, I think the summer slowdown put people off or it's been the the near nonstop 90 plus degree heat wave we're all going through throughout the entire, I don't know, planet right now. But we didn't get any emails about the uh, recent episode that aired about issue two of the Weird War Tales miniseries from 1997 which shocked me. So I'll be keeping my eye out and we will read those emails next time around uh, when they do come in. I'm sure they will. 
But for in the meantime, on social media, we got likes and shares and stuff like that from people like Laurent Skinkis Art at Laurent Skinkis Art on Twitter. You should go check him out. We got our buddy Luke Giaconetti from the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. Ranger Gord, who right now is calling himself Ranger Gord, Culture Wars Draft Dodger. <laughs> and he he does the uh, Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast called Prairie Justice. Look that up. It's an absolute favorite of mine. And Ranger Gord is an actual historian with published works on Western Canadian history people. So um, eventually Rich is going to have read some of his books. <laughs> but they're history books. They're out there. He'll probably pick them up in a garage sale someday and post about them on his book blitzes on Facebook. So Wayne Burroughs stopped by, uh, Mr. At Wayne for Veep, Doc Strange, Billy Delicious, The Telltale Mind stopped by, um, our buddy from, uh, <laughs> let's see, the uh, Dop Let's Team Up comic podcast at JSA4E Ross. He stopped by. Dave Steele from the Earth 2 podcast. Matt Spectro <laughs> from the Through the Multiverse podcast also stopped by. Another great show. And over on Facebook, Tim DeForest and Luke Jackanetti and David Steele and Michael Lively stopped by. So, you know, a little light on the dead letter office this time around, but we'll take it. You know, everybody needs a break. That's fine. We understand. It's not you. It's us. <laughs> That's, 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 that's all right. <laughs> and with the dead letter office closed for this session, we'll have Rich come along and lift your spirits up with the teaser for the next episode. I know what you're here for. To get away from your family for a while. Also, Weird War Tales 33. Face off. Unknown soldier. Not that one. Blue Falcon. Not that one either. <sighs> It's the end of an era as we approach the end of the year. But you'll have to tune in next time to find out what it is. Oh, man. It's not the Blue Falcon and Dino Mutt. My hopes went right up. (laughs) (laughs) Me and my animal heroes, you got me with that one. (laughs) Until next time when we find out just what other Blue Falcon that might be, as if it matters if he doesn't have a Dino Mutt, we have been the Weird Warriors. This has been the Weird Warriors podcast. I've been Max. He's been Rich. We've been the Batlam bros even. And we promise to make war. No more!